Well, you can open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Malachi. We began our exposition last week with a message, Don't Forget the Lord. That is really the, the message of the book of, of Malachi. And uh, this morning, my message is entitled, Don't Forget His Love. Really, that's the issue of the text. And, and I'm reminded, even as I looked at things this week, of um, a famous scene in The Fiddler on the Roof. Maybe you remember when um, Tevye comes to his wife, Golda, and says, Golda, do you love me? And startled, she says, do I what? And then he kind of breaks out in song. And it's sort of a, a song that's a kind of half song and half speaking. And he says, do you love me? And then she says, do I love you? With her daughters getting married and there's trouble in the town. You're upset. You're worn out. Go inside. Go lie down. Maybe it's indigestion. Tevye repeats it. She says, Golda, I'm asking you a question. Do you love me? She says, you're a fool. He says, I know. But do you love me? Then she responds, do I love you? For 25 years I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked your cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? And then Tevye recalled their past. She says, Golda, the first time I met you was on her wedding day. I was scared. She said, I was shy. He said, I was nervous. So was I. <clears throat> and Tevye says, but... My father and my mother <clears throat> excuse me, said we learned to love each other. And now I'm asking Golda, do you love me? Golda says, I'm your wife. He says, I know, but do you love me? Golda says, do I love him? For 25 years I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. Twenty-five years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? And Tevya concludes, then you love me. And she says, I suppose I do. He says, and I suppose I love you too. The scene finishes with both of them singing. It doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. Well, the issue between Tevya and his wife is love. Is there love between them? Do they love each other? Because there are real questions about whether there's love for one another. There's questions about the character of love. There's questions about the character of, of their love. And the issue of our text this morning is the issue of love as well. The people of Israel had, had questions about God's love. God declared His love, and yet Israel then doubted His love, and then God demonstrates the way in which He loved Israel. I want to just read the text for you, verses 2 through 5. <clears throat> I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, says the Lord of hosts. They may build, 
but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory, the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now our text breaks down nicely into three heads. First point, the declaration of God's love. Second point, the doubt of God's love. And third point, the demonstration of God's love. The declaration of God's love, the doubt of God's love, the demonstration of God's love. We see the declaration right there in the first part of verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Really, it's a declaration of God's affections for Israel. It's an affirmation of His favor towards them. Describe a commitment that God will have towards the people of Israel. He will be faithful to them. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know of God's steadfast love for Israel. I want to give you a quick history lesson of Israel. The history of Israel began about 2000 B.C. when God chose Abraham out of Ur the Chaldeans. The Bible never tells us why God chose Abraham out of this pagan, idolatrous country. I believe it is a picture of God's sovereign, electing grace. That's why He chose Abraham. But He chose Abraham and He said, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and so you shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abraham picked up out of Ur the Chaldeans and he moved, not knowing where he's going. Just picked up his family and left. Seeing that God had promised him this land, this great posterity, a great nation out of him. Now, It took great faith for Abraham to do that. He was 75 years old when he was called. His wife Sarah was 65. She was barren, past the age of childbirth. And yet God said that from you I will make a great nation. He just believed God. Genesis 15 says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he he carried on. And God brought about a child from Sarah in dramatic fashion in such a way that it can only be described as God bringing forth 25 years after this promise, when Sarah was 90 years old, far beyond the age of childbearing, she gave birth to a son named Isaac. And God promised that the blessing of Abraham would go through Isaac. Genesis 21, 12. Through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. Not Ishmael, but through Isaac. And God was with Isaac. And though his wife, Rebekah, was barren, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. And the Lord answered Rebekah and his wife conceived. She gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. We'll talk a lot more about them later, but suffice it now to say that God set his love upon Jacob, choosing to bless him with the promises of Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant didn't go through Esau. It went through Jacob. Why? Because God chose Jacob. In fact, Jacob's name was changed to Israel And throughout the Old Testament, it's always Israel. It's Jacob. It's the 12 sons of Israel which form the basis of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's not Esau. It's Jacob. 12 tribes. And and God blessed Israel to the point where eventually there were millions of people in the land. Millions of people, not in the land. They weren't there. They were actually in Egypt. But millions of people from the loins of Abraham, they found themselves enslaved in Egypt. 
But by God's great loving kindness, He delivered them out of slavery. Now, you need to know that it was God's love that delivered them. It wasn't because they were strong or mighty or righteous or resourceful. It was because God was expressing His love to them by choosing to be faithful to the covenant which He made with Abraham. Perhaps you remember the time when the Israelites were in distress and they cried out to the Lord. And it says in Exodus chapter 2, the Lord remembered His covenant and rescued His people. He remembered His pledge of love that He gave to the people of Israel. Eventually, they came in to the sovereign land. It had nothing to do with their abilities or power of righteousness. It had all to do with God's sovereign, righteous choice of them. In fact, listen to the words of Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8. It tells you why God loved Israel. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any of the peoples for you were the fewest of all peoples. He said, but because the Lord loved you, And kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You know, this is what characterizes God's love. It is a faithfulness to his promises to his people. That's what God's love is. It's a faithfulness. And the faithfulness of God shone bright and shiny through all the rest of Israel's history. You think about the time of the, the judges. As they got into the land, they, they went in this time of judges. And, and the time of judges is a downward spiral. The people of Israel rejected the Lord. They spurned Him. They worshipped the Baals. And then, then God caused the enemies to arise and, and start beating down on them. And then, and then they said, oh, it's so bad. God, deliver us. And what did God do? He delivered them time after time after time, after time, after time again. Why? Because of His great love for them. Not because they're righteous. Because they're wicked. As soon as He delivered them, they'd go right back in their sinful ways and God would wait till they cried out again. And then God would deliver them again and again and again. The history of Israel is a history of a, of a loving God. And eventually, at the end of the Judges period in 1 Samuel 8, they asked for a king. God said to Samuel, don't worry, they've not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. And even though these people of Israel rejected him, God still was faithful by providing a king after God's own heart, David. And provided David with the ability to, to conquer. And eventually there was such peace in the kingdom that Solomon was able to build this great and mighty temple which even a queen of the south, Queen of Sheba, would come to see and marvel at. What happened to Israel? Same thing as always. After Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel split in two. Ten tribes in the north were destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. But God kept His faithful remnant in the south, Judah. They were carried off into Babylon to be sure. But even when exile, Jeremiah promised that though they were in exile, their mourning would be turned into joy. Listen to Jeremiah 31. I've loved you with an everlasting love, says the Lord. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you and you will be rebuilt, O virgin daughter of Israel. <clears throat> Again, you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of the merrymakers. The tambourines go in and the merrymakers, they will sing again. And rejoice in the land. He says, again, you'll plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria, which is in the land. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. 
For there will be a day when the watchmen on the hills of Ephraim will call out, Arise and let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. Why? Because, Israel, I have an everlasting love for you. And the return of Israel from exile was a demonstration of God's everlasting love. God brought them back in a miraculous way, prophesying of a King Cyrus 150 years before he even rose. By name, they prophesied him. Cyrus decreed, let anyone who wants to go back, go back, and I will give you governmental funding, and you build the city again. Why? Because God stirred in his heart so as to bless the people of Israel. They rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the city walls, rebuilt the city. God provided for them everything they needed. And when you see the history of Israel, you can say from a broad perspective, God has loved Israel. And yet the one thing historians always say that we learn from history is what? Nobody learns from history. That's the case in the second point this morning, right? The doubt of God's love. The people to whom Malachi was was written had the Scriptures and they could read and they knew the history. They were the people of Israel. They they passed down traditions and they knew of God's love, but they they doubted it. They said, middle of verse 2, How have you loved us? It's a little bit like Golda, right? Do I what? You've what? You've loved us? How is that? How can that be? After 1,600 years, how can it be? It's amazing. They didn't understand how great the love of God was. They didn't understand the sweep of history and all that God had done for them in protecting them and keeping them in preserving them. Nor did they understand the character of God's love. The character of God's love was to be faithful to the covenant of Abraham, which went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And he was to be faithful to those people. They'd forgotten his love. They doubted his love. Now, on the one hand, I don't, I don't really blame them. They had experienced great difficulties in their life. Life in Israel wasn't particularly good at this time. The exile was a difficult time for them. The Babylonians came into their land and carried many of them off into Babylon against their will. They were forced to live in a pagan culture. Their joy was gone. You can catch a picture of their joylessness in Psalm 137. Composed in Babylon, they said, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and we wept. We remembered Zion. And we wanted to be there, not here. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. No more merrymaking music in Babylon. because we That's where we want to be. We don't want to be here. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion! And in Babylon they said, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It was was a difficult time for Israel in exile. They were in a foreign land, not because they chose to immigrate. They were in a foreign land because they were captured and carried away to that place, forced to live there for 70 years, suffering anguish of being in a pagan land against their will. Their hearts were in Jerusalem, but they were in Babylon. And I think they could have doubted God's love easily at that time. If we indeed are His people, and if God has indeed chosen to bless us through Abraham, why are we in a foreign land? It hardly looks like we're being blessed now. They didn't understand the character of God's love. They didn't understand the everlasting love of God. 
they doubted God's love. And, and these things would have happened the generation previous to Malachi's people, the people of Malachi's day. But even the people of Malachi's day, it would be a little bit like, like, like having your father live through the depression and have them tell you of all the difficulties they had during depression. And though even now there's a sense of prosperity, things still weren't really good for the Israelites. Oh, sure, they were back in the land. They had the protection of the Persian government, given governmental finances to accomplish the project of building Jerusalem again. You might easily say, see, isn't that a demonstration of God's love, Israel? Isn't this a fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy that now you'd be in the, in the land again? Take up your tambourine, right? Shout for joy. Doesn't this show God's everlasting love? But realize that things were far from perfect in the land. The glory of the temple in their day was far from the glory of Solomon's temple. In fact, it tells a story in Ezra chapter 3 and in Haggai chapter 2 about how when the foundations were laid and they saw how small the temple was going to be, the elders who remembered seeing the temple back in Israel, they wept. They said, the glory, it's not going to be close. It's not like it was before. They clearly understood the glory of the newly built temple seemed as nothing compared to the glory of the previous temple. On top of that, sin was in the land. Justice wasn't being upheld. The worship of God was despised. Things were far from perfect. And it's understandable why the people doubted the love of God. At this point, is a good point for application for us. I mean, isn't this natural for all of us when circumstances in our life takes a turn for the worse? Isn't it those times that we have a tendency to doubt the love of God? I know certainly the world does that. 9-11. Where was God in 9-11? Sometimes the people of God can respond the, the same way. If I'm a, His child, why are these things happening to me? Has God abandoned me? If He has a favorable disposition to me, what... Why are these things happening? Let me give you two verses you need to just embed into your mind. They need to be rock solid into your mind. I've quoted them often. I'll quote them in the future. Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice how Paul connects the, the difficulties of life with our security of the love of Christ for those who believe. He's not denying that, that difficulties will come. He's affirming that difficulties will come, but he's affirming that in that hour it's the love of Christ that will be with you and keep you secure So even when death comes, you think about life, what's the worst thing can happen? You can die. But Paul said, no, no, no. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Even death doesn't separate us from the love of Christ. Angels and principalities, no demonic forces can annul the the love that Christ has for those who are His. There's nothing that can happen in this life that can take the love of Christ away. Your wife might abandon you. Your husband may be killed in a car crash. Your wife may die of cancer. You may lose your job. Your daughter may be diagnosed with leukemia. And all those things have happened to us. People here in our congregation. 
Christ will never leave you. He will never, ever, ever forsake you. Hebrews 13.5 That's how strong the love of Christ is. There's nothing that's going to happen in your life that remove the love of Christ from you. Now certainly there are difficulties that come in the life of any believer. But you need to realize, Romans 8.28, that God causes those things to come for His ultimate good. When facing trials, you need to remember two things. First, God is great. He's sovereign over the entire universe. There's not a maverick molecule in the whole place. As Abraham Kuyper said, every square inch of this universe, God says, is mine. God is great. Nothing happens outside of His ordained will, and yet God is good. God is good. And you need to trust those things. If you trust those things, you won't forget the love of God. You won't doubt the love of God. And that will be your security when going through difficulty. And then you won't be like these people who say, how has God loved us? Well, they doubted God's love. Let's look at my third point this morning. The demonstration of God's love. In the rest of this passage, the end of verse 2 all the way through Verse 5, God's demonstrating His love for Israel. Israel had doubted His love, so now God seeks to prove His love. Now consider how He proves His love. He says this, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but... We will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build up, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. It's interesting how he proves his love. He begins with a a simple restatement of the reality of his love. Look at verse 2. He says, I have loved Jacob. This point in our text this morning, God doesn't dwell upon how He loved Jacob. He doesn't begin with proof of how He loved Jacob. He just reiterates it again. I have loved you, declares the Lord. How have you loved us? I have loved you, declares the Lord. That's what He says. He restates the truth. Should God have wanted to, He could have traced the history of Israel and demonstrated the many, many ways in which He showed love to Israel for 1,600 years. Right? It would have sounded probably like my point this morning. I loved Abraham. And I blessed him through Isaac and through Jacob and then the 12 tribes. And then you went to Egypt and I, my love brought you out of Egypt. And then I gave you a king even though you rebelled against me. And I saved the remnant. Even when you went to exile, I loved you and brought you back because of my everlasting love for you. He could have done that, but he didn't. He simply chose to restate his love for Jacob. I have loved you. And then in verse 3, he proves his love by proving his hatred towards Esau. He says, I have hated Esau. Now at this point, some seek to say, wait a minute. That's not the God I know of. The God I know is love. He doesn't hate anybody. Someone says, my God loves everybody. Well, that's your God. That's not the real God. The real God, as it says here, hated Esau. I listened to some sermons this week by some people who I respect. And um, I was kind of shocked. At this point, they said something like this. Well, it doesn't really mean that they hated Esau. It means that they 
Because God loves everybody. See, God loves Jacob and God loves Esau. What it means to hate is just, he loved him less. <laughs> Such an interpretation doesn't do justice to other scriptures. Psalm 5.5 5 says, You hate all who do iniquity. God's anger and His wrath is upon all who do iniquity. Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, the one who loves violence, the soul of God hates. There's an aspect of God where He hates evildoers. And even if you say, No, 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 but He, he loved Esau. Well, you've got to deal with this text here. It says, He hated Esau, and all your word studies aren't going to help. He hated Esau. He was against them. And furthermore, which I think is even more convincing, is, is any kind of um, effort to soften these words doesn't do justice to the context here. Look at what it says, how God describes his perspective towards Esau. He said, I have made him, I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. In other words, God was proactive in making sure that Esau's place of habitation would be barren. God made his mountains to be desolate is what it said, right? God made the sun to beat hard on those mountains, made sure the rain didn't come to soften up the hardness of the sun that came, stopped the plants from growing, and made sure the inheritance of Esau would be fit only for jackals, whom he created to be specifically adept at surviving the difficulties of the dry, hot wilderness life. Notice how active God's hand is against Esau and his descendants. He's determining the weather so that the mountain is desolate. Verse 4 continues. Though Edom says, We have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Catch what God is saying here. God makes their land desolate. God brings other nations upon them to destroy them. And Esau says this. Listen, we've been defeated. Our buildings are destroyed. We have been broken down. We've been beaten down. But we're not giving up. We'll return again. We'll restore the ruins of our inheritance. We'll dwell in our territory. We'll build them up again. And God says, well, they may build. But what do you say? I will destroy them. I will tear them down. The active hand of God against them. And let me say at this point, it's not pleasant. It's not pleasant. From time to time, my son, SR, who spends a great deal of time and effort playing with Legos, makes this great Lego creation. Sometimes he comes and shows it to mom and dad. Mom, dad, look at what I got here. And then along comes our three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Stephanie, who sees the affection that SR has for these Legos and sees him having so much fun playing. And so she goes and she tries to play and she forces herself in and she drops it and she breaks it and she tears it apart. And sometimes tears fall. In a few minutes, Stephanie ruins what took hours to make. And it's not pleasant. SR, is that a pleasant thing when that happens? No, no it's not pleasant. <laughs> well, this is the very thing that God says He'll do with Edom. They may build, 
but I will tear down. Try as they might to build themselves up, they will always fail because God will make them fail. You can't get around what the Bible is saying. I can't preach another God than this. I will tear down. Stephanie, in her immaturity, breaks the Lego creation that Asar makes by accident. But God is intentional here. The destruction of Edom. Why? Because of his love for Jacob and his hatred for Esau. And this verse 4 even ends. Men will call this the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. These words speak about the reputation that Edom will have forever. Forever will they be known as the wicked territory. Forever will Edom be known as the people that God hates and opposes. And you know what? This is a clear teaching of these words. It's a testimony of many prophecies in the Old Testament. I've got about ten of them written down. I'll include them on my notes if you're on that list to get the email. On Tuesday night you'll get that. Um, Many prophecies in the Old Testament speak just like this does about Edom. In fact, one in Isaiah 49 verse 18 speaks about how God's going to destroy Edom like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the destruction here. Okay, let's step back. Let's just step back from the text and kind of look at it here. Let me think about this. How is it that these words demonstrate God's love for Israel? Because that's the question on the table. That's what God's trying to prove. And He's proved it by showing how much He's hated Israel. Esau. Because at first glance, it doesn't look like God's trying to prove how much He loves Israel. It looks like He's trying to prove how much He hates Esau. Doesn't it? Is it? Am I? You catch what I'm saying here? Looks a lot like He's saying, no, I've hated Esau. I've made His mountains a desolation. They're going to be beaten down. Even if they build up, I'm going to destroy them. They're going to be known forever as the people to whom God is angry forever at them. How can that be love for Israel? Good question. I'm glad you asked because I think I have some insight on the answer. Um, First of all, there is a connection in many scriptures that connect what Edom did to Israel. Edom touched the apple of God's eye. And God says, you're not going to do that. Listen to some of these words. Thus says the Lord, Ezekiel 25, 12, 13 and 14. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them. Right? Edom acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance on them. Here you have Esau abusing Jacob and God says, I'll have none of this. He says, therefore, says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom. And cut off man and beast from it, and I will lay it waste from Teman even to Dedan, and they will fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance on Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Perhaps you remember what God promised to Israel, to Abraham very early on. I will bless those who bless you, and I will remember? Curse those who curse you. And as Edom cursed the apple of God's eye, Jacob. God was going to curse them. And that's what He did. And in cursing them, He's showing His love for Israel. Other verses say the same thing. Joel chapter 3, verse 19. Edom will become a desolate wilderness. Why? Because of the violence done to the sons of Judah. 
Obadiah, verse 10, Because of the violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. These people are going after the people of God and God says there's none of that because these are my chosen loved people. You know, God's love is like a husband's love for his wife. Think about it. If you love your wife, you cherish your wife, you have chosen of all the women in the world to pick your wife, And she's the object of your affections. Your love is magnified and lifted up as it is selective. Forsaking all others, I will love you. You're supposed to be looking at me, Yvonne. I will love you (laughs) as long as we both shall live. Now, doesn't that heighten a husband's love for his wife? What, What if husbands say, well, I love all women. And that's how great my love is. I love all women. It doesn't connect, does it? Because for love to be exalted, love needs to be selective. And now think about what happens if another man would come along and defile my wife in some way. Hurt her. Take her. Take her away by adultery. How how am I going to respond? How would a loving husband respond? Respond in rage. And anger. Because that's the object of my love and you can't have her. And men will kill for that. Why? Because of the selective nature of love. I've chosen to set my affections and care upon her and pity the man who touches her. That's what God says with Israel. I have chosen Jacob. And pity the one that touches the apple of my eye. I think that's one way of how this story here about Esau, God hating Esau, justifies God's love for Israel. But I think there's even another point, and it goes back here to verse 2, the phrase I skipped. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? And this takes us back to the very beginning of, of Israel. It takes us back to the days of Isaac and Rebekah. I told you earlier before that Rebekah was pregnant with twins. And I kind of passed it over because I knew I was going to come to it now. I was pregnant with twins. And um, it's, all, it's all pregnant ladies. My, my wife is pregnant right now. And sometimes, you know, we go to bed at night and kind of, oops, you feel that. You know, you can feel the babies going inside. And um, the dirks. Was it especially more with two? Yeah, it was more with two. And Rebecca noticed this and she said, the children were struggling within her. (laughs) They're like punching each other, you know, within their... Gracie and Lila never did that at all, I'm sure. But Jacob and Esau, you know, were struggling within there. And and Rebecca went to the Lord, sought the Lord, and and said, why is this? And listen to what the Lord says. Two nations are in your womb and two peoples will be separated from your body. The one people should be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Now that should sound strange to you a little bit. The older serve the younger. I mean, normally it's the younger serves the older, right? Right? Jeb and Jay, you guys have older brothers, right? You guys serve them, right? No. <laughs> That's normally how it works, right? Preston, right? you serve your brother normally, right? Or here it comes. I know my brother served me. I know he was younger than I was. And that's the way we made it. That's the way it always is. But he switches it. He says, the older will serve the younger. 
And eventually these two brothers came to be um, two nations. Jacob became the father of Israel. Esau became the father of Edom. God was for Israel and God was against Edom. You might say, now why did God do this? I mean, it sounds strange to our ears. I mean, normally, I mean, even in the Old Testament, the, the oldest son gets double inheritance, which I try to remind my father of often. <laughs> but why did God do this? Why did he have the older serve the younger? Well, the answer comes for us in Romans chapter 9, and it gets down to this selecting nature of his love. So turn with me to Romans chapter 9, and then we'll come back to Malachi 1 and finish our message. But Romans chapter 9, what's good about this passage is it quotes... From Genesis 25:23, which says the older will serve the younger, and it quotes from Malachi chapter 1 verse 2, it says, "Jacob I loved, Esau have I hated," and it gives us then insight into our text. This is the New Testament commentary on our Old Testament text. It's worthy of us to look at. In the context here of Romans 9, Paul's explaining how it's not all of Abraham's descendants who are to be recipients of the blessing of the covenant. It was Abraham through Isaac, not Ishmael. And now he's going to say how it's Jacob and not Esau. Look at what verse 10 says. It says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, and she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger, just as is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now, you need to see how clear and how painfully obvious Paul goes through to try to make sure that you see that it has nothing to do with Jacob, has nothing to do with Esau, has everything to do with God's electing, choosing, selecting love. Look at what he says here in verse 10. They had the same father. She consumed twins by one man, our father Isaac. One mother... They were twins. In fact, you might say they were womb mates, right? But notice how God makes it clear that though they had the same father, same mother, womb mates together, before the twins were born, verse 11, before they'd done anything good or bad, not because of works, not because of anything that Jacob or Esau would do in the future. It wasn't that God looked down the quarters of time and said, Oh, Jacob, he's the righteous one, and Esau, he's the wicked one. Let's choose the righteous one. Yoo-hoo! It's not how it is. Where the truth be known, Jacob was a scoundrel. He was a scoundrel. Stole Esau's birthright, stole his blessing by deception. You choose it on the basis of foreseen character, and Esau may well have been the one chosen. But God says it's not based upon that. Before they were born, before they'd done anything good or bad, not on works, and look at this, here's a purpose clause, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand. Or as many other versions say, that God's purpose of election might continue. In other words, the manner which God chose the younger over the older was so that it would be clear to all that his decree to love Jacob but hate Esau came long before they made any choices. It's an unconditional election is what took place here. The Lord wanted to be clear to all who saw what's happening with Jacob is because, look at verse 11, because of him who calls. Every single one of these phrases is all talking about how it was God's sovereign pleasure to choose Jacob and not Esau. 
just can't, you can't get around that. A lot of people try, but you can't get around it. That's what the scripture says. So why did God love Jacob and hate Esau? Because he chose to love Jacob and he chose to hate Esau. Let's get back to our text in Malachi. How is it that when God shows his wickedness, God shows his hatred towards Edom, how does that demonstrate the love God has for Israel? Well, here's why. Because we all deserve to get what Edom got. That's why. We all deserve to be under the wrath and anger of God. We all deserve to be hated by God. We all deserve Edom. But God shows His love for us when He doesn't give us what we deserve. As God's hand of wickedness was against Esau, it reminded them of the fate that they themselves should have experienced but didn't only because of God's love for them. Israel deserved to be treated like Edom, but in God's selecting love of Israel, they didn't get what they deserved. Rather, they became recipients of His undeserved, unmerited blessing. I said earlier, don't think that Jacob was more lovable than Esau. He wasn't. And don't think that Israel was more righteous than the other nations. (laughs) After being delivered out out of Egypt to slavery... Seems like all they could do is complain. They went to Mara. Oh, the water's bitter. Moses, why'd you take us out of this land? Then he sweetened the water. And then they're out there hungry. Oh, we're going to starve to death. Moses, why'd you bring us out of this land? God provided manna. Then the Rephidim. Oh, there's no water. We're going to thirst. We're going to thirst to death. We're going to die of thirst. We're going to thirst to death, right? Why'd you bring us out here? Seems like all they could do is complain. And then when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law of God, the glorious law, as Isaiah 45 says, what did they do? They made a golden calf to worship. And their idolatry was so blatantly evil in light of the clear view of understanding who God is. They rejected God after countless displays of His grace and glory. God was so angry that He was ready to destroy them. It was only when Moses stood in the gap and reminded God of His covenant. Listen to the words of Moses. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourselves, saying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land which I have spoken I will give to your descendants, and you shall inherit it forever. And God says, you're right, Moses. I won't destroy them. Because I made a covenant. Because I chose to love them, I'm not going to destroy them. God was on the precipice of destroying them. You need to see that Israel wasn't more righteous than they. You can write this passage down. Deuteronomy 9, verse 4 and 5. It says, I'm going to paraphrase it for the sake of time. When you get in the land, don't say, oh, it's because we're so righteous. But say, it's because they were wicked that you got the land. It was only by the power and grace of God the Jews entered into the land And why did God set His love upon Israel? It's because God chose to love them. God disposed His favor upon them by His sovereign choice. And He was faithful to that choice like a loyal husband is faithful to his marriage vows. Well, would you spend a few moments and reflect upon your own life? You'd come to the same conclusion. There's no reason why God would ever, should ever, place His love upon any one of you. None. You all should be like Edom. 
Now sure, all of us are His creation, but like Israel, all of us like sheep have gone astray. And like Israel, we've complained against the Lord. And, and like Israel, we've all gone our own way, rebelled against the Lord. As a result, the Bible says, in the New Testament, by the way, we've become His enemies. We've fallen short of the, the glory of God and become children of wrath. But, but see, it's then, when we're unlovable, in the midst of Exodus 32, idol-worshipping people, that God demonstrates His own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, that's when Christ died for us and reconciled us to Himself. Romans 5 verse 10 says, it's while we were enemies that we were reconciled to God. It's when we're dead in our sins, unable to do anything of ourselves, but it's God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we're dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together in Christ. And so I ask you this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, why did God set His love upon you? the only answer you can give is because it was His amazing grace that chose to set His love upon you. That's the only answer that you can hold water with scripturally. And when you realize, listen, that, 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 that you're only in Christ because God chose you, you come to see the love of God in an entirely different light. When you see that you were headed to hell with blind eyes and God is the one that opened your eyes to see the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ. It creates something in you. It, it creates a thankfulness and a joy that longs to, to worship your Lord. When you realize, I, I remember George Whitfield hearing the story. He's preaching out in the great, the great fields outside, preaching to masses, and then he sees this execution train going off this man's death. And George Whitfield preaching to thousands, use the illustration, right? You know what it is. But by the grace of God, there go I. And when you realize, but by the grace of God, there you're going... Unless God in His sovereign will decreed to choose you and to give you faith and to grant you repentance, you'll be stuck. But when you embrace the sovereign election grace of God, electing grace of God in your life, it'll transform you. I'm telling you, it will humble you because your salvation doesn't come from you, it comes from Him. And you'll be thankful because you know that you deserve hell, but you get heaven. You'll be joyful because you know what awaits you. You'll be secure because you know that salvation that began with God will end with God keeping you faithful until the end. And you will be a worshiper of Him in far greater ways than you've ever been before. And that's how our text ends. Your eyes, Israel, will see this. We'll see the destruction of Edom. We'll see what you deserve, but see God's blessing of that because you are Jacob. And you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. We should have been Edom, but we're not. We're recipients of the grace of God. Let's pull out the tambourines. Let's pull out the dancing. And let's worship Him who's chosen us to be His people. That's the gospel of Christ. That's what we need to embrace. So are you a worshiper of Him this morning? Do you love to sing His praise? Do you love to honor Him? Is He your delight and joy beyond everything else? Do you willingly give your all to Him? If you're not, it might just be the case you've forgotten the love of God. You may have forgotten the character of His love. And my exhortation comes simply to you. Don't forget His love. Let's pray. Lord, I know I've gone long, and yet that's you. This is your text. This is your truth. I thank you for your grace. Grace, grace paid for my sin. 
and brought me new life. Grace clothes me with power, enables me to do what's right. Grace will lead me to heaven where I'll see your face and forever thank you for your grace. I pray in Christ's name.